All right. Hey, uh, you're going to need a Bible this morning. We, uh, we use that uh, every week here. So if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Could some people just volunteer and just grab some Bibles? Uh, and some people, if you have your hand up. We'll be on page 27. Now, when I say that, that's 27 in this Bible. If you have your own Bible, you're in trouble. Uh, so ask for help. Maybe we're going to be in Genesis chapter 37. Raise your hand if you need a Bible. They'll be coming around and getting one. Uh, I just like saying I see that hand. There's just something very Baptisty about that. that it's, or some kind of revival, right? Chuck, am I saying I see that hand? It's something like that. Anyway, sorry. I, I'm here all week, I promise. Uh, we're in a series. Keep your hands raised. They'll, they'll keep passing those. We're in a series called Revealed. And we've been doing this series... Uh, because we wanted to take a chance to reintroduce to you not just the Bible, the full story of the Scripture, but the Old Testament, and to look back into the Old Testament and how it points to our future, future in Jesus Christ, the hope uh, in, uh, of the world. We have some people up front here, so there you go. So we had three objectives. Those three objectives were, were quite simple, uh, cultivate a love for the story, this book uh, is a story, and it has many stories, but we wanted to, to have you kind of find a love for it. You guys, when our church started uh, over 48 years ago, it was a, a group of people that had a love for the scriptures, for the story of God, and wanted God's name to be famous in Green Bay, and they just felt compassion and led to do that. They met in a basement. We... Our story wall is up. There's only a couple more pieces left if you want to walk down the hallway. Some of you don't venture like beyond this space, you know, like into the parking lot. If you go down our big hallway to the right, we have our full kind of story of our history. And I would just recommend that. But if you look back at that very first picture, it's a group of people around this story. We wanted to cultivate a love for the story. We wanted to connect the stories to Jesus the stories aren't random. God's word, the Bible, is not just a random set of stories. They're all stories that all fit together in pointing to Jesus himself. And then last, we wanted to charge you to not just hear it, but to apply it and share it. Uh, there are a lot of Christians today addicted to the information about God, but do nothing with it. And I think it's important that you hear this morning the, the call, the charge to you that God gives you is not just to know it, but you need to apply it. And then you've got to share it. And friends, if you want to look, kind of evaluate your spiritual journey, if you're not finding daily application to this, from this book and daily opportunities to share it, you're probably not in deep enough in this story. Spurgeon's quote explains that. The a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. It's a great line. It's probably true. Someone's Bible who's falling apart means that they're invested. And I have a bunch of Bibles that I've kept over the years because they got worn out. That doesn't mean I don't fall apart, by the way. I am falling apart in a lot of other ways. But the, when Bibles are used and they're probably then being applied and you're probably experience some, some great new freedoms and some transformation in your life. And so this morning, we dive into really a, a story here 
uh, about Joseph, but I want to talk just briefly about what we're doing. The past three weeks, we've taken three Old Testament sections. We've taken Genesis and the fall account, which is Adam and Eve leaving the garden. Then we took Noah and the flood, and now we're going to take Joseph, the rescuer. There's a caution in what we're doing. What we're doing is what's, we're focusing on what's called Christocentric teaching. That means we're looking at Old Testament uh, stories and saying they point to Jesus, not from an interpretive standpoint. That may sound confusing, but for more an application. What does I mean by that? You can't say that Jesus is like an Adam or Jesus is like a Noah. You start to get into an interpretation that that wasn't the intent. But what we do see, it points to a Jesus, to Jesus that will be perfect, will not fall to the temptation that Adam and Eve did. You find Jesus who will be obedient, and it won't be an ark, but it'll be a cross. And so as we read the Old Testament, and because we have that vantage point, it should point us towards that. And so this sign is when I was in London, and there's on the concrete platform before you step onto the train, it says, mind the gap. There's a gap between there. I think you just need to recognize there's some caution in this, in this and what we're doing. It's not wrong for us to do that. It's really us gaining perspective of what we know is to come and seeing the signs pointing towards Jesus. Fair enough? So this morning, we're going to talk about the rescuer, and that's Joseph. Just a little bit of background about Joseph. Uh, his name means may God add or increase. And we'll find that his, his life, excuse me, is really a lot about the increase in his life coming from nothing. He is the 11th son of Jacob. Uh, we're going to find that the tribes of Israel come out of this line and all his sons, Jacob's sons, will, will be parts of these tribes. But you also find uh, Jacob's name is the one, he's the one who wrestles with the angel and it'll be changed to Israel. So we get the name uh, Israel and the nation of Israel. Uh, his, Jacob goes through this whole story, and you don't have to read this in Genesis. Remember, he works uh, you know, seven years for his wife and he gets tricked by his father-in-law and it's the wrong daughter. Uh, again, crazy insight about that. That's to work again another seven years for his wife, Rachel. She can't have kids, so she finally has this one, Joseph. Jacob's about 80 years old, and so this is a very special son to both Jacob and Rachel. About 13 chapters of Genesis uh, are dedicated to the life of Joseph, so it has value. Uh, not that a smaller story doesn't, but it has a, there's a purpose for it. There's a lot of importance to the story. Joseph was about 13 years um, in... Uh, a very rough picture of slavery, uh, and not that any of them are good, but he, he was a, definitely a slave of Egypt, an Egyptian slave for about 13 years, but then will rule as really the most, one of the most powerful people, uh, most important and powerful people in the world for about 80 years, all right? So we're going to dive into the story. It's on page 27 of the Bibles that we passed out, but I'm just going to dive in this morning. I'm going to give you some application about the nature of God. But I also want to give you some, some interesting pictures about Jesus and the Father. But then I also want to give us some application to that. Genesis 37, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed in the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. 
Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending to the flocks of his brothers and the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. Any of you pregnant this morning, you may be thinking of cool names to give your kids. Bilhah, Zilpah. Wow. Um, His father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Okay, how many of you are youngest siblings? Raise your hand. Because you're all the spoiled people in the room, right? (laughs) All your brothers and sisters don't like you because you got the easiest road, right? Right? So not only that is Joseph set up kind of for failure because he's the youngest this way. And I don't mean that like I'm dooming you in the room, but you get what I'm saying. He, gives, he tells on his brothers. So his dad, Joseph, or his dad, Jacob, says, Joseph, go out and check on your brothers. Comes back and goes, hey, listen, they're messing around. They're not doing what you told them to do. You can already see boiling, not a good situation, right? How many of you siblings have been told on by the younger one, right? Yeah, some of you don't want to admit it. Yeah, that's... So verse 3 says, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. So not only is the, the youngest probably the least disciplined, the favorite, oh, he's the favorite, he tells on them, it's known in the family that Joseph loves him the most. You want to talk about a problem, like a family problem situation that's going to start to percolate? Not only that, he buys him the best gifts. So we get this picture of that musical that made it famous, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. He's got this colorful robe. None of the other sons get this. I mean, Joseph is doomed and in a bad situation because youngest, most loved, best gifts, and he tells on his siblings. Not good. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. And they could not even speak a kind word to him. That's interesting. You think about the tension in that family. You know, because sometimes we know that there's probably pain in our families that we had a, our parents had a favorite. But very rarely do you hear parents saying, I love this one the most, Right? And then like blatantly at Christmas or birthdays going, I'm going to give them the best gift. That just, you don't do that, right? That creates problems in families. Well, we get this picture first that Joseph is loved by his father. We get to see this rich love. If we were to, again, mind the gap, but look ahead about what father-son relationship does this give us a picture of, we definitely see All throughout Scripture, the Father saying how much he loves the Son, Jesus Christ. Look at this text, Matthew 17. While he was still speaking, this is Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when we've been to Israel twice, we think this is the Mount in that area in Galilee. But speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love. With whom I am well pleased, listen to him. There's no doubt when you read the Bible, you get a definite picture that God loves the Son. He is the favorite. He he favors that Son. And so we see an interesting parallel, a connection possibly, that Joseph is loved by Jacob this way. The, The application here for us is 
then how about us? How are we loved? If Jesus is the favorite, what, where does that place us, his creation? Sons and daughters of Adam. Look at 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. I love that word, lavished. Poured out. That we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Because of Jesus' death and gift to us as his sacrifice for our sin, for our evil, we get to see the picture of the love that God has for us. Let me, let me explain it a different way because I don't think you're getting it. About four to five years ago, I don't remember exactly the date. Um, I can't remember. Is it four years when Cody died or is it five years? I'm putting Lauren on the spot. Five years. When Cody died, my half-brother, he was much younger than me. He was 17 years old, so he's about Lauren's age. And he was drunk driving up uh, Pacific Coast Highway and died. My dad has never been uh, a warm, yeah, I love you, son, come on over and snuggle with dad. N- never been that way at all. And I, I just realized, you know, that's just probably not what I'm going to get from my dad. But when I was at the funeral with my father, and I walked him in, it was just family, to see the open casket of Cody, he literally fell, and I had to catch him. He's a big man. I had to catch him, and he was weeping. And, and it was so strange for me because it was the first time I thought, oh, my dad loves me. I, I've never seen my dad express that kind of love for his kids, and if it was me in there, I'll bet he'll do the same. In a strange, unique, kind of parallel way, I think what we see from God is how much he loves us by his gift of his son and sacrifice for us. Now this morning, the statistics are probably true. Most of you walk in here hurt, broken, confused, and feeling like you're not loved. And this is a promise that God loves you. I want you to just close your eyes this morning. I'm not going to do anything to you, so some of you are freaked out when I ask you to close your eyes, like I'm going to, come, I'm going to get out of the stage and do something weird. Promise I'm up here. Close your eyes. I just want you to think a moment. I want you to thank God for lavishing love on you. And he does that by sacrificing his favorite. Just tell him thank you. Some of you have probably never done that to God, but to say thank you, God, for the love you've given me. Father, we're blessed this morning by the hope and the peace that Jesus brings, that you would sacrifice your favorite because you love us. What a great thing we can... Rest in this morning in that promise. In Jesus' name, amen. You're loved. We get a picture of of Jacob loving Joseph. We see the father loving the son. And you can rest assured this morning as you read that story that the father loves you. The Bible will say that you are all adopted sons and daughters of God. He loves us. He lavishes that love on us. So the story goes on, and Joseph, as he grows, he will actually 
start telling his brothers about dreams he has. Jo, jo, uh, Joseph's called the dreamer. And he'll have a couple dreams about not only does he get a cool gift from his dad, he's loved the most, he's the youngest, he tells on his siblings. He's also going to do probably the thing that sets his doom. Hey, I have a couple dreams, and one of them is, hey, one day you'll bow before me. That's probably not a good idea to tell your, your older siblings. It's not going to go well. So the story is his dad, Jacob, sends Joseph out to go find his brothers again. And so, as, so when Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, they, set, they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him in one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. I mean, this is rage. This isn't just sibling rivalry. This is evil. Where do we see that turn where people that say we're family all of a sudden turn that fast? Have you seen it? You've probably seen it in culture. You can read ahead in the end of the Gospels and see Jesus entering Jerusalem being celebrated. And within hours, they're going to say, brutally torture him, end his life. So this is where it starts to all change for Joseph. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the, the beautiful colored robe, the ornate robe that he was wearing. And they took him and threw him into the cistern, and the cistern was empty, and there was no water in it. I mean, just the, the, the physical reality of being thrown into a well where there was no water, and the pain of this. And no, the story that continues is Reuben's going to feel compassion, and what they're going to end up doing, they're going to see a, a, a slave trading group show up that's heading to Egypt, and they're going to sell their brother off. They'll take the robe, they'll dip the robe, they'll kill a goat, and they'll dip the, the robe into goat's blood, and they'll tear it up, and they'll bring it back to their father. And the, and the Bible talks about that their father was in mourning and just wept over the loss of his son. What, what do we know about this portion of it? First, that Joseph is betrayed by his brothers. Sounds simple. But I want to make an application here that's so true that we probably got to recognize is that Jesus himself was betrayed. Now we know that he was betrayed by Judas. We know that his disciple Peter denied him. We could argue pretty, pretty similarly, they gave him up. Nope, don't know him, Peter said. Judas, I'm going to sell off and I'm going to tell you where he's at and you can go arrest him. But listen to what Jesus says, John 16. Do you now believe, Jesus replied, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I'm not alone, my Father is with me. And this is an interesting verse, this is an interesting text of scripture that Jesus is saying, not only will he pretty quickly after this be left alone physically by his disciples, it's also, I believe, a foreshadowing of what's to come, that when Jesus returned, there were people that will walk away and betray. In fact, I would say all of us are betrayers, are deniers, are sinful. And we've left 
him all alone. And we wonder why we feel alone. Jesus will continue in that text and say, and here's the promise, but I've told you these things so that in me you might find peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome. I've overcome the world. Most people walk in here feeling a sense of trouble. The world is trouble. Do you realize we're not, there's not a lot of peace in what the world's offering? Your friends, your family, all the things that we try to put around us to make ourselves comfortable and peaceful will fail you, will betray you. I'm not trying to bring a big downer to your life. I'm really not. I, just, I, want, I don't want to set you up for failure to think that everything's going to be great. Life is hard, friends. It is hard. And the psalmist, David, will say it. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He, he, there's a hope that David has to say, I know in the midst of living this life, I'm going to find a sense of peace from God in the midst of trouble. Wait for the Lord, he says. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. It's hard to find a sense of peace in this world. Jesus paints an interesting picture that we have left him and we're going to find that people will leave us. And it's painful and it's hard. But what's our hope in that? Well, Jesus is saying... You can take heart. I've overcome the world. I've over, I already won. I'm going to bring you a peace. It may not fix everything on the outside, but in the inside you can know that I have won. This morning, again, if you just bow your heads for a moment, and I'm going to ask you to first confess how you've betrayed God. Maybe even this morning some of you just don't know God and you're in, you're in a, a permanent place of betraying him. Jesus asks for not partial, but all. And in that, he promises a peace in your heart. Will you just ask him for that? I'm looking for that peace. Father, I know there's trouble in the room, and there's troubled hearts. Might you bring that peace that surpasses all understanding? God might... The invitation that your son Jesus gives to come, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. God, I pray that this morning in Jesus' name, amen. So the story gets fast forwarded, and so let me fill in a couple of the blanks. He sold to slavery. He ends up uh, in uh, a situation where he finds a, a role in one of the high officials in Egypt. Uh, he, he's a good-looking fella, and so this high official's wife wants to sleep with him. And there's an in, kind of unfolding of that story, and then he escapes, lose, loses his second robe because she grabs it and he lets it go. A whole little inner side story to that, but drops that robe. Anyway, he gets thrown in prison again because she accused him of rape. But every place he continues to go, Joseph is obedient and he doesn't repay evil for evil. And so he's in the jail cell in the, in the king's prison, probably the worst place to be, and he finds favor. Well, he starts to interpret dreams, and he interprets the dream of a cupbearer and the baker, and helps them out where they get brought back to the king 
One still loses his life, but one finds favor. And Joseph just says, remember me. Tell the king, hey, I, I didn't really do that, and I'll be okay. They're Pharaoh. So it finds that he ends up getting out of prison because he reads, kind of not the tea leaves, but that sounds really spooky. He, he really interprets a dream that Pharaoh has about seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And Joseph tells Pharaoh, this is what that means. You're going to have seven years of great harvest, but you better save it because there's going to be a great famine. Now, in the meantime, what's happening is Joseph's brothers and his father Jacob are in Canaan, but they're going through the same famine, and they're trying to figure out how to get food. So Jacob, Joseph's father, hasn't seen them in, what, uh, a lot of years, 23 years. He's going to send all the brothers to Egypt to get food, but they don't know that Joseph's there. So Genesis 41, Joseph was 30 years old, and he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He's in slavery about 13 years, and this is kind of the role he'll be in for about 80. Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. He gets the authority. Uh, he is the number two person in all the land. They say at this point, Egypt might have been the most powerful nation in the world, uh, and right now Joseph is really the most powerful person just under Pharaoh from slavery, from the bottom of a cistern, to this role. And it says, during the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentiful. Joseph collected all the food, produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt, and stored it in the cities. Each city he put food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain in the sand, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records. Great study about how his strategy was and what he did and warehousing and storing, and it's an interesting read. It'll be, it'll be fascinating for some of you business and strategists. But what we get here is that God keeps giving grace and favor to Joseph for his obedience. In 1 Peter it says, do not repay evil for evil, but give a blessing for those who do you evil. So I think in our culture, we get this idea of justice, right? And we want a pound of flesh for someone who does wrong. But that's not very biblical. If you're a biblical person, and there's a lot of people that throw around the Bible quite a bit, the, the idea of justice is up to God. And the idea of when you're done wrong is to give a blessing back is what makes Jesus radiate throughout your life. People go, why would you ever do that? And this is what is we see in Joseph. He's thrown in prison, wrongly accused. He's sold by his brothers. He could have immediately, upon his role in Pharaoh, said, send the armies and slaughter my brothers. Doesn't do that. And so we find now, we're going to fast forward that you're going to find that he, he's going to be right in front of his family in a moment. But Joseph is obedient. Now, I want to give you just a promise here that I think is really important this morning. And I want to differentiate between credits and obedience. John 6.38 says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus himself is saying, I am going to surrender all of myself to what God wants. Let me ask you a question this morning. Whose will 
do you follow during the week? Whose will are you worshiping during the week? Yours or God's? I mean, God says clearly you should forgive anyone and everyone. So will it be your will for revenge, for justice, or will it be his will for forgiveness and grace and mercy? God says he wants generous hearts, and he says, win the opportunity to give to those people in need, do it. Or will you worship your own will and your own desire? You see, we're left with this decision and choice every moment of every day. And we find in the life of Joseph that he was consistently obedient to the will of what God wanted. He didn't have a Bible. He was just following the way of God, an oral tradition, and oral stories about who God was to continually to give. Who are you worshiping? What will are you worshiping? This morning, I want you to think about this as we're going to get ready to go to communion soon, but I want you to think about that because I think it's important this morning. We have a lot of people today that say they're Christ followers but are not fully surrendered. Jesus didn't say, come follow me, oh, but you could do that part-time or a little bit. He said, I want all of it. And I don't, I don't think we get that today. I think that's why we have church cultures that are powerless, transformless, empty, dead. Now, there's a difference between obedience and credits, and in our culture today, we we come from a, a false perception about Scripture. It doesn't say, hey, do good things in God. You have more favor with God, meaning you, you, get, you have a better standing. God says, listen, Jesus is the reason you're in good standing with me. Remember we said he, you get his lavish love because of his son. Because of that love, my hunger will be to surrender to his will. My desire is to Show my dad how much I love him. And when I do that, there are blessings that come. The difference is it's not out of a heart of trying to gain credits and watching this, this, this heavenly scale going, up. Oh, I, I did some bad things. I better get some good things in the, in the other side and outweigh it. This is about being a person that has a heart of obedience because you love him. You want to you give to him because he's given so much to you. Too many people today operate with this idea that God's a big judge waiting for you to, he's balancing the scales of your, the good and bad that you do. Friends, if that's true, then Jesus' death was meaningless. It says that for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift from God, not of your works. And he says, so that no one's boasting. Because I'm pretty competitive. And if this is about like storing up credits, I would try to win. I would try to beat all of you, really. If this is about storing up good credits, I would be trying to keep a scorecard going, oh yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to whoop you. Because I'm competitive and I think we would be. But God said, no, I'm offering you a gift to balance the scales ultimately forever. Because of that gift, you should give me. Give your heart 
of will to me. Psalms 128 says, Blessed are those who fear the Lord and walk in obedience. Walk in obedience to Him. This morning, can you just bow your heads one more time and I'm going to ask you just to think and pray. Ask God to help you surrender your heart to Him. What will are you worshiping? What will are you worshiping? Many of you this morning are struggling because you're on the throne of your life. The scripture says clear, we're to give way to the Father to sit on that part of our life. Father, may we be men and women that are surrendered fully to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. So Joseph's brothers all show up to Egypt. Could you imagine the shock and the surprise for for Joseph to see his brothers, to remember the dream that he would have about his brothers bowing before him. And it says that his brothers did not recognize him. So they're not impacted yet, but they're bowing before the most, second most powerful person in the world saying, we need help with food. And for Joseph, could you imagine the emotion of bitterness, of of hurt of all that and he doesn't let on they go back and forth and he sends them back and he keeps the youngest brother and he plays with their minds a bit it'll be a great read for you it's a great soap opera Uh, but it's powerful and it says that Joseph finally reveals but he says Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants and he cries out have everyone leave my presence So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. Could you imagine that moment? I'm the brother you threw in the cistern. I mean that, talk about a Hollywood moment, uh, like just a moment in the film, right? Where it just grips you. And he weeps so loudly that the Egyptians heard. He weeps of the emotion the, just the, the rawness of what was unfolding there, the power he has to destroy him. So Pharaoh's household hears about it definitely, but Joseph says to his brother, brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? And he misses his dad. But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified. Could you imagine now for the brothers, uh-oh, I mean, uh, that had to be, again, uh, this sacred space that the writers of, of this story put in front of us to just put us in that moment. And you see in Genesis 50, it says, when Joseph's brothers saw, this is after now, I'm sorry, let me fill in the blank because I just jumped you, what, like five chapters. So Joseph shows favor and grace and does not punish them, gives them the food they need, more than they need, says, go and get your father. Jacob's going to have a dream to say, to move his whole family to Egypt, and Egypt is going to give them great favor. Um, They don't like shepherds, so they give them a part of the land. Well, this is how the nation of Israel ends up in slavery in Egypt, because they outgrow the Egyptians. But what you get here is uh, he's made 
peace with his brothers. He gets to see his father. He's excited, but his father dies, blesses him and dies. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back? Now that dad's dead, what if now he was waiting for that moment? So they send word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died, kind of implying that they made it up. This is what you're to say to Joseph. Ask, I ask that you forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they've committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins and servants of the God of your father. Uh, when their message came to him, Joseph weeps. He's probably just feeling overwhelmed. Here we go again, this brokenness. Verse 18 says, His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We're your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. And he asks a question Am I in the place of God? It's interesting here, I said this a little bit wrong in the first service, but there's an interesting picture here. He is, in some ways, visibly in a place of power and authority like the Father is that he can bestow grace and mercy upon them, or he can exact justice, rightfully so. But he's saying, it's not my place to do that to you. I'm not in the place of God. That's for him to do. And listen to what he says to his brother, and it's the famous section of this whole 13 chapters. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. A truth about God is that God uses the evil acts of others for his good. Let's even send this closer to home. And let's be more honest this morning about where we're really at. The truth is, we have all fallen short of God's glory. Therefore, we're all sinful. We're all evil. We, we can't clear that. That had to be God's gift to pay for that. And you could look then at First John and say, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. I've heard people say, uh, I, have, I don't sin. And I would say, oh, you just, and I don't try to like illuminate them and say, hey, no, you are a sinner and point at them. But I just recognize that they don't see a perspective of themselves. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. That comes from Christ, right? But if we claim to not have sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. A different way to say this, if If we say we don't sin, then we say we don't need Jesus. This morning, we could all agree, couldn't we? We've done evil. When we choose to sin, we do evil against God and others. I could confess that I do evil. Often, not by choice, but by my flesh and my human nature. I don't want to, but there are times I'll... You know what? No, I'm, I'm going to gossip. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think this thought. I'm going I'm to make this choice. You guys fill in the blanks. You, you know when you make that choice. It's not his will, it's yours. And the scripture calls us to recognize that. 
In Romans 8.28, it says when we can recognize that, and we know that in all things, even in our evil, even in our choices, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You know how I can illustrate this? How many of you have had evil done against you and God used it for glory? God used something horrible in your life. I know that's for me. God used something horrible in my life and did great things with it. It's not that God chooses to do evil against me, but the, the, the reality, friends, is life is trouble and it's hard. And some of you are going to have health, all eventually have a health issue, right? We'll all have a health issue eventually. Relational, financial, I don't know what it is. You're going to have something. But God, when we give over to his will, he will surprise you about using the pain and trouble in your life for his glory. That is a beautiful principle throughout this whole story. And could we point straight to Jesus that because of the pain he went through in his life, the suffering he went through, it is for his glory and used for what? Our good. Jesus will say the same thing. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. This morning, as we go to communion, I want to give you three kind of challenges to think about as you head to the table. One, can you admit your betrayal? As you go to the table and to communion, it says that you're only to do that if you know and have a relationship with God. That means you've surrendered your will and heart over to the Father. And when you do that, can you recognize your betrayal and look at yourself? Say, God, forgive me, because I have fallen short. And I enter into your gift of grace and mercy because of Jesus. Nothing I do fixes it. I couldn't do enough good works in my entire life. It is because of that. Can you recognize your betrayal? Second, can you return your heart back to God and say, God, your will, not mine? Some of you are operating, you're two-timing. You say the God name, you sing the songs about God, but you have a whole other part of your life that it's your will. And you almost tell God, hey, I'm going to give you this part, but not this part. Friends, there is no middle in following Jesus. It is for the fullness of your entire life. And then last, as you enter into that, can you rest in that peace as you take the bread and the cup that he gives you grace and mercy? That there is a God that says, you don't have to perform for me. You need to just surrender to the gift and I'll give you peace. Friends, that... That is worth singing over. Amen? Father in heaven, as we go to the table this morning, might we be reminded of our great betrayal, but your great love and mercy to us. Might we enter into that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.